What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Marcus and Tebby, founder and CEO of Good Sugar, a New York City-based quick service concept serving unpasteurized organic smoothies and juices, as well as plant-based prepared foods and baked goods. In this episode, we'll explore Marcus's entrepreneurial journey, including the founding story of Juice Press, his unique approach to culinary and retail, and his plans to expand into CPG. Full disclosure that unlike prior episodes, there's a ton of raw profanity in this conversation, which may be why I like it so much. This podcast is brought to you by Hungry, a media and research platform dedicated to the intersection of food and technology. For more information, please visit Hungry.tv, that's Hungry with no U, and click subscribe to join the weekly newsletter. Marcus, it's awesome to have you here. I'd love for you to just start off and, and talk about your background. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but Mai Tai, uh, skydiving, kind of your lifestyle when it uh, comes to, you know, a sobriety and then kind of what led you to found juice press over a decade ago well thank you i mean it's pretty much very broad uh so you know you you that question could lead me to babble for three hours <laughs> uh put people to sleep uh you know if i had to you know try to summarize my life i would say is that you know at 54 i look at there just really being two halves of my life right i was always sort of a, an adrenaline junkie a thrill seeker uh, needs a lot of activity, needs a lot of distraction, doesn't like to sit still. You know, in my in my teens, that was a problem, right? Because boredom and, and isolation and loneliness and all those things and not really having enough direction could lead to self-destructive behavior, right? So by the time I was 15, I was, you know, using uh, marijuana habitually to the point of being very uncomfortable by it, not being able to function, to realizing that I needed to get sober. So I went to 12-step recovery path and I actually went to rehab for, for pot, which was very unusual. I just feel like uh, I was lucky that I had, I had asked for that, that I, that I wanted that. And then at 15 and a half, I got sober and that was it. I got sober the, uh, the old-fashioned way, which is uh, having someone hit me in the head with a 12-step big book. And... I feel like everything in my story really is a positive, natural progression from that. So, um, you know, when you intertwine all the things like skydiving, and you were almost right when you said, uh, what did you call it? You called it uh, Muay Thai? <laughs> Muay I said Mai Thai, thai. Like, a thai, like a cocktail. Mai Thai, thai. yeah, yes, yeah, like the That's cocktail. Right. It's Muay Thai. Oh, Muay Thai. And, yeah. uh, you know, Muay Thai for the uninformed is the, one of the national sports of Thailand, Thai boxing, which is a ring sport similar to American boxing, except instead of just being able to punch with your fists, you're able to uh, use elbows, knees, front kicks, roundhouse kicks. It's a very uh, powerful combat sport for hand-to-hand combat, for striking. And I loved it. I was very passionate about it. I started it in my 30s. And... I, you know, I was fearless. You know, when, when, when I had the opportunity to train with someone who then one day woke up and said, guess what? You're fighting next Friday. I just, you know, I didn't even hesitate. I, I, I started that. The Muay Thai came quite some time after skydiving, but they overlapped each other and Muay Thai phased out skydiving for me. 
So I gave up skydiving to climb in the ring and get hit in the face with elbows because it was safer. Uh, you know, when I when I tell my story like that, like in a synopsis, I sound like a crazy guy. You know, um, probably was, but rational. You know, very calm because in the background, I'm an entrepreneur. I never not, I ne- I never was not an entrepreneur because even when I was skydiving through my twenties and and my mid thirties, I had business in skydiving. I uh, started, you know, when I had about two hundred jumps, I was very immersed in skydiving at that point. And I, I was, um, I saw, I saw the necessity for something in the sport. And at that time, I pursued it because I wanted to make my living in the sport because I loved being around skydiving. And that progressed. I, I had a business for almost eight years in skydiving until I sold that and and came back to you know grounded reality, you know, pun intended. So, where I'm at today with retail is really just a natural progression, you know. So. I feel I feel like I I would probably do better and be quicker if you had more <laughs> specific questions rather than broad. Right. Can can you can you guide me through that because I you know it's it's going to be too much of an effort for me to <laughs> totally yes I'll keep break myself, it down. Uh, so yeah yeah well, I, I just want to be brief I want to be interesting totally. So yeah so 2010 you start Juice Press you scale to 85 locations. Before we get into Good Sugar, I just would love to just spend a, mi- a minute talking about. Where where we were at that time, you know, from from a the juice land, where you were in the juice landscape uh, with cold press and and kind of um, sure. what what that looked like and why you started it. I like your broad questions. You know, you're really putting the uh, you're putting the onus of me to be <laughs> concise. All right, so let's see if I could do that. So around 2008, I was. I was about five years out of my skydiving business. I came back to work for my dad. Uh, I was in my 30s, mid-30s. I didn't have any kids. And, uh, you know, my dad was a safety net, you know, so to speak. I got out of the skydiving business. I got out clean. I didn't owe any money to anybody. I had a little bit of money saved. And just tried to figure out what the next thing was. Skydiving business was so incredibly draining of me seven days a week and and it was an exciting business i was skydiving for as as a side part of my business in skydiving was i'd be on airplanes five days a week you know jumping out of them so when i came back to new york to settle back down my my dad's business was sort of like a a recovery house for me because i could hide in this antique business that was moving like a tortoise as opposed to somebody in freefall (laughs) <laughs> and it was impo- it was important for me to to do that because what I learned in that period of my life was that I was just an entrepreneur and I specifically had a knack for retail and I had a specific knack for marketing and 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 my self-help method of communicating to my given audience is a natural for me I have no formal background or training in anything. I just grew up in the retail industry. So, you know, it is a, it's a second language for me. So by 2008, I did, I did okay for myself with my dad. I was just bored, you know. His business was just very sleepy for me. And so I told him that I had this idea that I wanted to open a juice bar because I was inspired by the world-famous Liquiteria that was on um, mm. East 11th Street and 2nd Avenue. And I thought that was just a very inspirational retail business. 
And at that point, juicing and smoothies was such a big part of my lifestyle. It made sense. I was very passionate about food. And I think that, you know, I was very um, unafraid of making the switch. It just seemed it just seemed easy between my nightmarish, hellish experience having retail stores on skydiving airport drop zones, you know, being involved in that. Uh, going to the juice business to me was was far less far less uh, intimidating. So it took me it took me about two years from hearing myself say that I wanted to do that to actually be in a position where I was trying to put together my version of a business plan, you know, trying to figure out how I was going to get into the business. And so um, what, what I look back is when you put the intention of doing something out there, you have to be careful because it actually ends up happening in some cases. In my case, it usually does. And it, it was the same thing for me in the juice business. I had told a bunch of people that I was looking to do something. And then I got introduced to this guy who had a shitty juice bar in the East Village. It wasn't doing anything. And he was interested in giving me some cash to help me uh, to fund it. And so there you are. Now, now, you're, now you're making a contract. So you're in the business just because you opened your mouth and said you wanted it. So the first retail location for Juice Press came serendipitously. I was in a children's park with my then two-year-old daughter. I looked across the street and the first retail store on East First Street became available. And I lived on that street and I knew that street well and there was never retail stores available. And here was a store right across the street from the children's park. The woman was putting a sign in the window for rent. I grabbed my daughter, I ran across the street and I said, how much is the rent? And she said, 2,500. And I said, put me in touch with the owner, I'll give you 3,000 a month. So I went up instead of down. Interestingly enough, that was the right tactic because the sign hadn't even gone up and the landlord was already negotiating with other people who were trying to get the rent lower. And so the fact that I came in and said, I'll give you 3000 she she gave me the store. So um, go figure, right? <laughs> so next thing I knew, I was sitting there with a lease and the store was tiny. It was 300 square feet. What am I going to do with that? So... <laughs> Uh, there was a moment. There was a moment in time where I just had no concept of what was going to happen next, and things things just opened up. It was just the time, you know. I mean, I just I remember all the things that just fell into my lap just because I was there and I was doing stuff. For example, a friend came to visit me out of nowhere. I told him that I was building a store, and they happened to just bring with them an Argentinian raw food chef. His name was Martin. And it just so happened he was jobless. And it just so happened he was extraordinarily talented. So we met, and in three seconds he was working for me. Now I had a chef. We were formulating recipes, juices, smoothies. And it just happened just like that. I wasn't even looking for anyone. And so that was a lot of the magic of that business. It was also magic because I was in the right place at the right time for that industry. Necessity is the uh, mother invention. I think that what the industry wanted was what I created at Juice Press because the first store was very successful right out of the gate. And so, you know, entrepreneurs like love to take credit for their successes and love to deny their failures or blame them on somebody else. 
I, I, I try not to do too much mm -hmm. of either. You know, I know that a big part of my success at Juice Press was just luck, being in the right place at the right time. Now, of course, I had to take action and a lot of action. But what I've learned is I've taken the same action in other projects that didn't work out. There's things that I did that I thought were better. I produced a skydiving, I produced skydiving videos for training and entertainment. And I remember I had a very big success with a skydiving video I did in 2001. And the second video I did, which was a sequel to it, was just a far better production. And I just look at it, it was just polished, but it just never did what the first video did. Which, so you could see that even a better effort sometimes can't, doesn't yield you a good result if it's not lucky. You know, so Juice Press was just a very fast paced journey. You know, things happen really quick for us at Juice Press. Uh, you know, the first store was really getting a lot of sensational, uh, media attention. You know, for no reason I got big articles in New York Times or Wall Street Journal or, you know, I go down a list of things. People wanted to really write about the subject. And if I look back as a branding guy, I would say my story was interesting because the guy's an interesting character. You know, he's got a shaved head. He's got tattoos. He's an East Village guy. He talks really rough. You know, there's, there's a lot of things in there that are sort of memorable as opposed to like when everything is really like not memorable. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a lot of brands where the the founders are just unbelievably boring and there's nothing to talk about. I, I even think in some ways I, th there's something villainous about me as a, as a, as a, as, as a, as a retail guy, you know, at first I'm off putting, right? You might say, Oh, another guy with a shaved head. And at the time I had a pit bull and you know, everything <laughs> about me was so, so uh, unbelievably prototypical, right? But it's not. When you get to talk to me, I'm not so stupid, and I am a thoughtful thinker, and I am a methodical operator, and you know, I'm I'm very sober about stuff. So, you know, I, I would say that in itself is an interesting story. I found in the years at Juice Press when I was raising money, the the the, the audience of wealthy people that would enjoy sitting with me or taking me on a boat ride or whatever it is, just because I was just an interesting article to collect you know so that was then you know that was a that was a nine-year uh journey and uh you know 90 percent positive for me right and so it brings us to where we are here i need more Amazing. questions yes so you scaled that to 85 locations i mean started that I, I remember that location right on the same street as prune yeah i want to say say this the right way money scales things to 85 <laughs> locations we don't we, what do we do what do we do as entrepreneurs we raise the money we think we have a lot of you know steps and plans but without the money without the burn you ain't doing it so yeah. you know i got the money to to build stores uh there was a lot of people that were talented behind me you know i just wanted to be clear that you know just like a movie for example you know james cameron gets all the credit but like what he probably had like a thousand people working on his film that, that if any one of them wasn't there it would be garbage so the 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 director usually gets all the credit but let's just say it's fair to say that i had a lot of great partners i had a lot of great staff members operators 
real estate brokers, lawyers. I mean, if you just go into the, the pool of people that were workers in the front of house, in the kitchen, that's really who scaled Juice Press. I was what they, what they would call the visionary, right? The visionary person is the one who sees the vision at the mountaintop and is saying, yes, everybody, we can build it. It's going to happen. We make it look like it's happening. So everybody shows up and does their part. Um, but what did I really do? <laughs> Except sign my name to a lot of leases. <laughs> so then I guess at some point you start working on Good Sugar. This idea is kicking around in your brain while you're still at Juice Press. Uh, and you're starting with with supplements. I guess talk us through, kind of, yeah, how what what that next chapter well, was like. We, you know, building a chain of restaurants, we'll say, is not for the weak at heart. There's a lot of money spent just to build your infrastructure, just to test ideas, to make mistakes, um, to support what's about to happen. You, you know, getting to 85 stores. So uh, at that point in, in 2011, 12, uh, an investor got more involved. Um, he's the current owner of Juice Press. His name is Michael Karsh. And he's a, a financial person. And he liked, he, he's, a, he was a, he's a type of person that if he had a fleet of cars, he'd be a mechanic also. He would enjoy opening up the hood and, tinkering with the car. So it started off with him just really being someone who I, I think maybe as a as a hobby or an interest really got involved and looked at the numbers and stared at the stores and asked fundamental retail questions, which were the, the relationship was very positive because you, you, you need to talk about retail if you're in retail with people that have good input. It's a constant conversation, you know, whether or not we're promoting this or how do you sell that or are we taking a store here or whatever. So he was a great person to run the operation with and we ran together for close to six years and the ending of my career there was built in as soon as I took on him as a partner because it would just be a matter of time before he would want the whole thing for himself and it would also be a matter of time before I, I really have a value because I'm not a bookkeeper uh, or I'm not going to be a corporate spearhead who figures out colossal HR problems. You know, so the and, and also you could say is that my marketing style is sort of guerrilla marketing. I go with what I feel and it worked really, really, really well for Juice Press. I would say money people want something uh, totally different. They want it to, to rhyme with something else that was successful. And, and Juice Press really didn't have anything to rhyme with because it was such a unique category. You know, so I would say is that my, my, my partner's interest in other businesses like Dunkin' Donuts, for example, where, the, you know, that's a business that's sort of a turnkey operation. You know, his, his instinct to move Juice Press in that direction at scale is probably the right instinct because you know, we have no evidence that says that a juice company with that level of purity and service and, and coolness and freshness, we have no evidence to say that that actually scales well. You know, um, so by, t by 2019, uh, you know, I felt the calling again, the same calling I felt when I left skydiving, the same calling I felt when I left my father's business, which was I just didn't feel 
that there was a place for me there. You know, I'm I'm two thousand percent certain that my ex partner didn't want me there anymore. I was uh, interference, and there, you know there was a good opportunity for me to sell my interest and get out. And I I would take that curtain every single time if it was a game show. You know, uh, Henny Youngman, the uh, the comedian. You know, Henny Youngman was he passed away? Not familiar. I'm too young, I guess. Uh, he he was he's an old school comedian. That if you called him and said, Henny, we need you to do my son's bar mitzvah, it's $500, mm-hmm. he would do it. And he, he was a very famous comedian. So his, his philosophy was take the money. So the idea is you never know when you're going to get another gig. So right. my idea was my opportunity in 2018 was to take the money and get out. And so I took that. And, um, you know, I had a very easy non-compete. It was only for two years. And, uh, you know, it, it took me two and a half years to have a document that was three inches thick that had every step I was going to take for the next 10 years in good sugar. Wow. And, you know, I, I, I got very, very organized during COVID. You know, um, you know, I just I completed several hundred pieces of artwork. Uh, I did probably no less than 150 package designs uh, that are actually all in use. In a, in a small company with one store. I made the packaging extremely diverse, so it's almost very difficult for you to get the same bag, the same cup, the same sticker <laughs> on the label. It's all different. So just try to make something different and interesting. And I, yours truly, I had to sit and do that during COVID. And um, the the amount of branding and marketing material and, and things that I have completed, if, if, I, if I took you on a journey... And, and showed you what I had in Trello for uh, artwork. I have enough artwork for the next 10 years. Wow. Uh, I certainly have a direction that I would continue to follow until it proves that it doesn't work. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, this is uh, one I really enjoyed. I, I took from your store. Uh, it's been sitting on my desk for a minute. And uh, we'll, we're get into this. You have, I'm, I'm, you have, you're showing the uh, you're showing them the little booklet I made called "You're a Pig," <laughs> which is sort of an introduction. Well, it's a little micro introduction into the early things that I would make people aware of before you make them aware of your menu. You know, just the ethos behind the brand, the the what's even the cover. You're a pig. It it, it gives a person, the audience, it gives them a, a feeling about okay, what is this brand about? I love and it. And so. Um, do you do you have the the book uh, the Good Sugar Diet? I don't have the the big book. The, that's not the next read I need to do. Right. So so that was I did that during COVID. I took um, unlimited number of essays that I wrote on diet and addiction and food and my experience and 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 how I help myself with food and things like that. And I just formatted it in a way. That was just very familiar for me in, in terms of how you know technical books should be laid out. Where for me, this book just represents that you could pick it up and open it at any time and read you know a two-page chapter. That's how small the chapters are on a particular subject that I think for me is very useful when I reflect on my relationship with food. So it's not like a solid through read like a novel. It has a beginning and a story arc and an end. Mm. It's really just my thoughts on how humans got into the predicament they are with their diet and ways out of it. And it encompasses everything 
from the emotional and psychological components to eating to what it is actually that we're supposed to be eating. So I got a lot of shit done during COVID. Amazing. So we start with, with juice press at the time. There weren't that many players doing cold press juice. I don't think people, you know, this idea of that you're killing a lot of the nutrients when you're juicing food, uh, you know, the traditional way, not the cold press way. And then this idea of raw food. At the time, it seemed like it was pretty, pretty much one of a kind. I guess I'd love to just understand what you've taken from that playbook and what's changed now? Well, I think, first of all, in, when I started in 2010, I think there were significant players in the market space. They were ahead of me. You know, uh, Liquiteria was one of them. He had his business since 1996, was an epic business for him. He was probably doing, you know, three and a half, four million dollars out of that one store. He, his, his business brought attention to that business. Uh, there was a, a company called Blueprint, which was a spinoff of the bottled version of what Liquiteria was doing, except they only were cleanses. They had built a significant enough business online, and they were really famous for doing juice cleanse for three days or five days. And their business model was more of a commissary and then direct to the consumer as a, as a you know, meal plan, three-day juice cleanse. You know, so, and then there was another small business that had one or two stores called Organic Avenue, and they were sort of the elite business because they were organic and they were in glass, not plastic, and they they were following the raw food paradigm, which Liquiteria wasn't. And then there was One Lucky Duck, which was a small business on uh, like 17th and Irving that was attached to a famous raw food restaurant called Pure Food and Wine. They was a $7 million restaurant. Uh, it was a vegan raw restaurant that had an alcohol component and they were, you know, from 2000 probably, they, they, they were reigning supreme with that. And then you had businesses like, you know, and you can't neglect them to, to mention them because at that time the customer thinks like that. You had Jamba Juices all over the city. And then you also had the litany of one million places that just have a, you know, a rotary juice bar, a, a rotary machine and pictures of celery on their windows. So when I got into the industry, there was plenty of awareness to uh, the category. Now, the, the thing is, is that as a consumer of the product and a retailer, what, I, what my job was to do was to find where the weaknesses were. So here's what I came to the conclusion. I came to the conclusion that there was nobody that was good at the food juice side of this and good at operating a business at the same time. They were great operators that were terrible at juice, and they were great people with juice who were just terrible operators. So I said, oh, well, the industry needs someone who's good at both. That was one thing. The other thing is that the industry, what many industries do to themselves is they cannibalize or they destroy the customer. For example, electronic stores on 7th Avenue from, say, 57th Street all the way down to Times Square – New Yorkers will never shop there because we know what a bunch of crooks they are. <laughs> they, they, they destroyed their industry because they were so uh, uh, despicable in how they operate their businesses and how they bait and switch and how they lie and all the things that they do that any sensible person that lives in New York is not going to buy 
their computer from the, you know, the, the corner electronics store in Touristville, right? We could say that. It's the same thing with um, the juice industry. You know, the juice industry just had a lot of people in there that just couldn't do the right thing. And so the industry imploded on itself because the customer was, at the end of the day, confused. They didn't know how to use the product. So I saw, like, to me, one of the great, most important tenets of juice is it should be organic. It doesn't make a lot of sense to, for someone to be so headstrong about their diet to the point where they're drinking juice and professing health, but yet the package it's in is messy and destructive to the planet. So there's a disconnect there. And those disconnects can only function for so long within an industry before it becomes obvious to everybody else. So um, the lack of intelligent retailing was the reason why I feel in some ways the, the industry was ripe for someone like me. What I brought to the industry was, first of all, the store was cool. It was on East First Street. In 2010, the doors would open up. All day long, there would be really cool fashion people, uh, skateboarders, uh, you know, just East Village, you know, the tattooed guy, the guy with the pit bull, you know, I love it. Here's an SUV. It's a rich guy showing up from uh, 68, you know, 65th Street. Uh, they're coming in from Staten Island. Um, celebrities. Uh, it was just that type of store for that moment in time. And the product was just pristine. I, 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 I adhered to the, a principle, which is to create the product the way I want to consume it. Why would I sell anything less? Unless I was just some dumb merchant who said, you know, just got to make some money. So I'm lucky because at that moment in time, that's exactly what people wanted. They, you know, they wanted to come to Juice Press because they knew it was organic. They wanted to come to Juice Press because... They liked cold-pressed juice, and everyone loved that I had like 25 formulas right there in the refrigerator. There's no intelligent operator in the universe that would say have that many SKUs. I saw it as a mechanical advantage. It was. It was a mechanical advantage until it wasn't. At scale, it's not for sure, but at a few stores, it's a mechanical advantage because there's something for everyone. You cannot walk out of there going, oh, they didn't have the one I like. Fascinating. That's an interesting tactic of, of starting really, really broad and then, and then narrowing it down. Well, it's, it's, when, when you start off, even today, I know what my competitors are doing wrong. So that's the only thing that I'm going to attack. I'm just going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about anything else. I'm going to make the customer as aware of what I'm doing as possible in terms of what I put out there on the airwaves, on the website, on a postcard, on a, on a, in that little book, you're a pig. If, I, if, if you delight in that little book, you're a pig, and you, one takeaway you're going to get is maybe not that I'm going to buy my juice from that guy from Good Sugar, but I like organic. What's my mechanical advantage over 10 of my competitors out there that are not using organic produce? Even... even the nicest places in New York, the ones that charge the highest amount, will not profess to be organic. They just won't because they don't want to pigeonhole themselves and be stuck not doing the revenue and the margins that they want, which I just think they're selling themselves out. Yeah. 
They're selling, so, they're selling themselves out because, because they're not, they, they can't figure out a way to get the consumer to agree and say, yeah, of course I want organic. So you have this, you, I guess like one of the terms you use to describe the first good sugar location is a longevity bar. I'm really curious to unpack why you think it's like tied to longevity and then maybe you can share kind of some of the, the high level takeaway. I know you don't like high level. It's nothing, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's nothing, it's nothing as interesting as you think. Longevity bar was just a, a frame of words that I put on a piece of paper because <laughs> I think juice bar is not interesting. That's all. It's just not, you know, I mean, what, what's, um, when, when you think of all these different places that we know of, when you think, when you think of Chipotle, what do you think of? I think of burritos and bowls. There you go. They did their job. Okay. Um, the pizzeria. You think of pizza. In our category, in our category, if, a people, if people think of me as a juice bar, they have, unless they're fanatics, there's a limited amount of times that they want to use me in their week. Mm. So, so, so juice bar and smoothie bar have limitations to it. Um, the word restaurant is too vague. Doesn't really describe anything. Um, I just, I just, I was playing around with the idea that uh, something like that might be good, and then it never really hit my attention because after looking at it a bunch of times, I thought it was cheesy actually, and so you know, and I and I have a very good filter for that uh, in my in my head. I just felt it was too too affected the language, and then I actually sat with it and I said, well, I already know that I'm near the hospital, and I'm sh I'm pretty sure every day. Customers that are dying come in here because they're they, you know they're they're on chemo. I meet them, or somebody that has an illness and they don't really they're not even really sure that they're going to live. So then I said, "Is longevity bar actually like how would I feel if I was sick?" And there was a place called Longevity Bar. I would I would just think that was insensitive or stupid. Mm. Um, so obviously I didn't go with that. I don't put that anywhere. Um, you know, I have to, I have to, I have to stick with the, with the reality is that my category doesn't really have a two word sentence yet. Mm. Uh, our category, it just doesn't because people don't eat like this. My, my customer base eats like this. Sometimes they eat like this one meal a day, five days a week. And the customer at large wants to go faster and faster. There are, people complain. It's too slow. Not here. Like They'll go to Chipotle. It takes eight minutes. I'm like, what else can a person do to make your food easier to eat? You want them to chew it for you? They get it, they're, going, they're getting it from the farm. They're getting it trucked. They're washing it for you. They're putting refrigerators. They're paying electrical bills. They're building stores. They have workers. They have systems. They're training. They're cooking it. They're packaging it. How can you possibly think it needs to go any faster than this? So that that's what the fast food industry creates. It creates unconsciousness around convenience, which is one of the root causes of why people just shovel shit into their mouth. In my in in, in my business, this is as fast as it's going to be. This is it. You want a smoothie? It takes five minutes. I got to make everything fresh. You know, I figure out a way to make things. Five minutes. That's pretty good. I was in, I took my kids to a dim sum place. You know, they don't eat like me yesterday. And those are the most efficient human beings on the world with the fastest cooking utensil on the planet, which is a wok. And it took them six minutes to get the dumplings to their mouths. So I said, if it takes me five minutes to curate things that aren't poisonous, 
that's that's the obstacle that's that's what i that's what mm. my job is to teach people to to say yes it's okay my job is to show people why plastic doesn't make sense anymore in this community my job is to really help people to understand why organic is important it's not just you know uh um conspiracy theories my job is to get people to understand why juice itself is so beneficial is because it provides you with the nutrients and the calories that you need to avoid eating garbage. Mm. It, so, so in other words, yes, go ahead. No, I like love to, you're about to have a question. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, I'd love to just break down the, etymolo- the etymology of good sugar, right? So refined sugar, bad, but what is good sugar? And yeah. It's chemistry, baby, chemistry. You know... Water does not boil below an exact temperature. When you bring the boil, water to, what is the temperature? Is it 180 degrees? Do you know what the boiling point of water is? I don't know. I'm uh, just I'm using a metaphor. I'm I mean, out of my range. On a, I'm on my kettle that I boil for my coffee, which I actually haven't had this morning, is 120. Okay. One could say that boiling point of water is a gradual thing, Right? But I assure you, if you kept the temperature below the boiling point, it would never boil. So it's just chemistry. So now when you understand that very loosely the way I just described it, you can see that all things in chemistry are very, very subtle. So there has to be a difference between sugar when it's good and sugar when it's bad. There's a point at which chemistry takes over. It's just science, right? So... When you think about this, is that your chemistry is designed to take the food you eat and turn most of it into glucose, which is the thing, it's the fuel that a cell itself actually absorbs. The glucose gets taken in by the cell, and that's the energy that the cell will use to actually do its tasks. Okay, When you eat, let's say, an animal protein, for example, the protein matter gets broken down and you use the protein matter. But even within the protein matter, there's in the, within the steak, your body's going to say, hey, I'm going to take some of this and I'm going to use it right now for calories to move, to think, to get stuff done. And so the body's going to have to take all that material and turn it into glucose again. So this body has mechanisms for doing that, straight out. If you look at the anatomy of a human being, it's undeniable that other than our intelligence and our ability to make weapons and hunt together, we are not designed like any other carnivore in this universe. We don't have sharp nails, sharp teeth. We don't have great hearing. We don't have unbelievable night vision. We're not stealthy. We're not even that big. We're not, right? If you look at our digestive system, the length of our digestive system and how long food travels in our digestive system is not ideal for dead flesh matter. It's just not. The material is in our stomach for too long. It becomes necrotic. Uh, bacteria feeding off of it. The, they they off-gas. So, every, you know, the metabolism of the bacteria that eat flesh matter in your stomach, they're, 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 they're creating gas in your system because of how long food takes to trans, transition from the mouth to the anus, right? We are designed as carbohydrate-burning machines. Our, our, we are designed on this planet, the, the prescription from nature said, these guys need fruits, vegetables, nuts, sprouts, and seeds. They're going to do great. 
Now, in that design, which is very brilliant, which is why we're a robust creature, is because we're actually closer to being omnivorous than we are herbivores or, or carnivores. We can eat almost anything, right? So if, if, if our ancestors were trapped up in Antarctica during the winter, if they were only herbivores, they would have all died out because what would they eat? So the fact that they could move over to flesh material was a very intrinsic part of their survival. But for the layman, what the layman doesn't understand is that the animal that they're eating is basically plant, just arranged in a different format. Because usually... Right, there you go. And so ultimately what makes us omnivorous really is our ability to convert different types of nutrients into the nutrients that we need and also our ability to get rid of stuff. We have, we're very good at excreting waste. <laughs> but there's a limit to that. There's a limit to that, right? There's a scientific limit to that. If you're eating a less than ideal diet your entire life and everything you're doing is a dietary mistake, there has to be a limit to how successful you can be. So there's an ideal diet and then there's a survival diet. If you were in a plane crash and you were in the Antarctic somewhere or in the polar region and you, eat, you had to eat the dead pilot's ass to survive, you can. But that ain't the, that's not going to be on the menu for the next 10 generations, right? You're not going to then come back to civilization and saying, guys, I have proof that pilot's ass should be on the menu, and then that's what you eat all the time. That's not really right. intelligent, right? So the reason I'm saying it as ridiculous as that is because that's what the fuck happened to humanity. Out of trauma and necessity, we copied what other animals were doing. We, we learned to eat flesh by watching big animals pounce on little ones. We said, ah, I could do that too. It's not the ideal diet. It never has been. It never has been. And today there's three profound and significant reasons why it's not the ideal diet. And these three profound reasons did not exist in the olden days. The first reason is you're not, you won't be as successful in your health. The next reason is you're, we're, we destroyed the planet with industrial, uh, for, you know, d industrial, you know, Factory cattle farming. raising and, and Factory farming, not a great word, because I don't want you to put in your mind that if it's outside of a factory, it's good. Because there's a lot of land where there's just miles and miles and miles of cows sitting outside. That's not good either, right? And it's not just where they raise them. It's how they transport it and how they feed them. So what we have to do to get water and food to the livestock, to then end up with livestock that insufficiently feeds a population of humanity which at the current moment the vast majority of human beings are malnourished. That doesn't mean they're underfed, it means they're poorly fed. Even when they're wealthy. They have symptoms. There's symptoms all over the Western world and all over the world everywhere. It's not just a Western problem of a population of people who by virtue of what they consume is slowing down their ability at having a more comfortable experience in their body. And it's, and it's not just because of animal protein. The bigger culprit, actually, quite honestly, is processed food and how yeah. the food industry became really an abomination of something that should be good. It's really warped and twisted what it has become. And 
the average citizen doesn't really want to look at that because they got other problems to deal with, the other anxieties and stresses, and this one is just too big. So then how, how through your writing, you know, and through, through Good Sugar as a restaurant and as a brand that makes products, do you think that you can start to incite some of this behavior change? Well, that's a good question, you know, and I, I, I said this the other day, I was listening to somebody talk in depth about psychology. Obviously, he was a psychologist and he was talking to a group of people. And I, and I, after he finished talking, I was on the side with him and I said, I, I told him, I said, I never want to be in your position. And he laughed, which is I never want to explain to people the solution to the problem. It's too fucking complicated and humans are fucking stupid, stubborn, addicted, defensive, vile, violent fucking creatures. I don't want to be in the crosshair of humanity trying to say, hey, guys, you're doing it wrong. That's not me. Instead, I, I just like to be one of the guys that says there's a problem <laughs> because what I'll let is I'll let someone like you be the prophet. I'll just give you the words. The reason I chose that path is because I don't think there's enough time for me to be a good dad, practice my yoga, be a good husband, enjoy my push-ups. I, I just don't think there's enough time for me to change the world one person at a time. So for me, it's just say it and don't be attached to what happens next. The restaurant is an extension of me just saying it. It's actually the platform. I'm, I'm showing I am the first retail business in New York that eliminated single-use plastic. I don't have money behind me. I'm not, I don't have corporate financing. I'm not Starbucks. <laughs> I took a chance. I took a risk in the way that I'm setting it up. The risk I took was that New Yorkers would hate it. I, I would, the whole time, for three years while I was prototyping this, I even did a pop-up to test how people reacted. The entire time, I was in dreaded dread. I was in fear that New Yorkers would just say, yeah, I do want to clean the planet, but I don't know if I want to carry this glass home with me. <laughs> so what, what, I'm, what I'm happy about is, is that New Yorkers so far are showing me that they love it and, and they're favoring me for it because I think that this demographic that I'm faced with right now wants to do better. They're ready. So that's why they're actually in this lifestyle to begin with. Why they're making a choice to eat this way is because they're thinking about some stuff. And so the first step that I could do is open up where I know there's an audience that will listen. And then from that audience, we're going to impact, what, 20,000 customers over the next year or two. Different people will experience this brand. In that mix, there's going to be more retailers that say, you know what, that schmuck in New York did it. I could do it better than him in Vegas. I'll do it in California. This, the things that I'm doing in this business are novel for this business. There's some, some new things here. It's not the same old tricks. It's not the, you know, just big deal. There's another vegan place open. The, the plastic is a big thing. But the other thing, if you've been in the store, is I got rid of all the retail refrigerators and all the product is served on ice. Mm-hmm. And and I and I did that I did that as a discipline to create that sense of urgency to the operation that when the ice melts it's over. 
We got to get rid of this. That's how that's how much product that we're producing. It's how much product that we're displaying. It's the it's the message behind freshness. It it, it conveys and and creates a demand for the customer. The customer is going to want that kind of fresh product, and that's going to hurt to some degree because we're in New York and we're on 69th Street, which is a very powerful demographic of the overall economy of New York, maybe even the world. I'm not smart enough to talk about that by by far, but I'll say is New York is a style maker and an influencer location on the planet. Okay? Through the doors in the last six months, I've guessed, I've, I've hosted people from all over the, the, the planet. I had Japanese people coming in taking pictures of the branding. They're looking at the food like it landed on from another planet. Like they can't <laughs> believe that you know, where's the bread? Where's, you know, it's like, where's the fish? Where's the rice? And then they eat it and they're like, holy shit. So that, what that sparks in the Japanese guy who's an entrepreneur who has something in Japan is, oh, maybe I can do this over here. And that's how it spreads. So it's not just about, it's not just about you. It's really about like the world just following. It's not about me at all at 54. I mean, come on. It's not about me at all. I'm I'm an obstacle on this journey, because I, I have self-centered motivations and needs. I'm trying to make money, and uh, you know the business is reliant on me waking up in a good mood and getting intelligent, creative, compassionate things completed. So, while I am the catalyst behind that, I'm also the obstacle, and so making my ego omnipresent is such a such a catastrophic mistake because it just doesn't, it's not going to do anything. I'm not, it's not like I'm Justin Timberlake and I can sing the high notes and dance. You know, I'm, I'm just a retail guy that's stringing ideas together and making choices. And I have a very, I, I think I have a, a very good command of the subject matter, not just the nutrition part, not just the, you know, where did these problems with food start? Uh, not just solution on how to change, but I also think I have a good mindset for the innovation of how to retail this product. I've, I've, I've become very familiar with what excites this customer, and so I try to play to that without deviating from my five mission statements. I have five. We'd love to hear them. Well, they're on the website. There's five because... I have a different I have a mission statement for investors which is we're going to make a boatload of cash. <laughs> and I have a mission statement for um for what I believe ultimately is probably the hardest part of this project which is not only to generate money which is you know going to keep us a business but to do so in a way that paves the way for other people to say this is the way a business should be run. It should be extremely thoughtful about how it's affecting the chemistry of the people it serves. Uh, we have to be very thoughtful about uh, our um, environmental impact. You know, I, I could say that you know there's nothing perfect about what what I'm doing right now at Good Sugar by any means, but certainly, you know, when I look back at the trail of plastic that I left behind in my other company. I, I, somewhere I guessed in my mind over nine years, I must have, I'm responsible for 30 to 50 million pieces of single use plastic floating around out there. 
I, so I have to take responsibility for that as a, an, an ever-expanding conscious person. You know, I'm not going to beat myself up for it, but I have to say that I'm the I'm on the the supply side. It's like the, the drug dealer. You know, the worst drug dealer excuse. You say, "How could you deal drugs? You're dealing them to kids." And then he says, "Well, someone's going to do it." <laughs> oh, that's that's a great justification. Okay, so the evolution for me is that. I was that someone who had to do it in my other company. I didn't think about that stuff. That stuff was an obstacle to my path of success. Today, I said, well, how can I do this again without thinking of that? How can I? And there's lots of things like that for me in this business. For example, how could I truly think about helping others if I don't figure out a way to help people that don't have access to good food because they're not in that economic zip code. Yeah. They, they represent a great deal of us in society, how they live and their happiness somewhere affects other people in society that may have more money. We're all interconnected. It's all one thing. And so, and also from the mission statement of the business perspective, it's intelligent for me to say, how do we get this product in the hands of people that 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 find nine dollars too expensive well it's not an easy task and and i i don't have the answer just yet but i know that it has to be there it has to be something that's bothering me late at night and it does yeah i mean you're you're doing so many things i think it's like kind of the tesla approach they start with the 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 sports car and then they figure out how to get down to the you know, the $30,000, the cheaper competitor. But, you know, we need something drastic here in food, obviously. Well, but it's not, it's not just, it's not, it's not just me. It's a question. It's a, it's a, it's about being in the right place at the right time. It's not just me. Here's the right place at the right time. Remember, the greatest weapon I have is that I can articulate the knowledge. I can do that. I could talk to any audience. I can explain to any person why they're going to feel better if they eat a certain way. Take away the obstacle of it's expensive and I don't have enough time. If you remove that and you show them what this food does, everybody's going to agree, right? I'm not a, I'm not a madman because I'm telling someone to eat strawberries for breakfast instead of pancakes. <laughs> like it's, not, it's nothing that crazy. If you really get to the core of what my message is and you look at it, you're like, oh, he's telling me that dairy is inflammatory. Guess what? 34 doctors told me that. I, I just I wasn't ready to listen. Because my doctor was a chain smoker. Why would I listen to him anyway? <laughs> oh, he's telling me that I'm eating too much animal protein. And there's 10,000 books that say that already. There's not, it's not just me. I'm not like some you know, revolutionary inventor. You know? And so what I'm doing is I'm giving people, uh, uh, I'm giving them the material they need. I'm saying, here, I'm telling you that, that having a smoothie is healthy. I'm making it for you. Come and have it. it I've I never had any people in all the millions of things that we served at Juice Press that ever had health problems because they adopted our lifestyle. I knew tens of thousands of people. Simultaneously, I kept track of all the thousands of people in New York that were doing cleanses, waiting for someone to send a lawsuit because their loved one died on the second day, or I drank five days of juice like he said, and I ended up in the hospital. I had to have a liver transplant. It never happened, not even once. And, and oh, my God, are there crazy people in New York? 
and we get everything. So we could say that the lifestyle that I'm espousing is an extremely safe lifestyle. There's nothing weird about what I talk about. In fact, it's the lifestyle of the average person who goes to the supermarket and puts $300 of shit into their grocery cart. That lifestyle is bonkers. That's insanity. And so it's flipped how people see the lifestyle that we teach to how people actually live. So my job is that I'm just a reverend. I don't give a fuck how it sounds. I don't care if you felt a little judged. I don't give a fuck. I'm just going to tell you what I think. You know what? You could push me out of a fucking window if you don't like what I'm saying. I just tell it the way I see it. This is my experience. It's my knowledge. You know, uh, I back it up. I live it. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, saying one thing, you know, I'm not espousing a clean lifestyle and, you know, I, I'm, you know, and I'm banging hookers online and, and, and snorting coke, you know, off of teenagers' asses. I don't do shit like that, you know. I, I, I practice what I preach. So at the very least, at least I'm going down with the ship. So I think people like that passion. That's exactly man, I'm, why I'm, I'm talking I love having much. you on. So I'm amped up, man. You're gonna you're gonna have to chop this no, up and make it sound good. No, it sounds. I sound like yes, crazy. We, we do we do chop it up, but and the way we are chopping it up right now. So, so how do you think about expanding across different channels? You have the the brick and mortar. You, I think from what I researched, you did start with some supplements that you were selling. Um, I did great. I did great with the supplements. And I have that in a side business. I changed the brand for the moment. I'm running it through a different company uh, because my, I have a friend who's in that business and I'm letting him do it. He's much better at it than me. And I needed a break because doing a supplement business and retail and then two other things that I'm doing within the retail, which is I'm making, you know, trying to progress myself to the point where I have a consumer package goods line so that I can sell in big supermarkets. There's, there's too many unrelated divisions you would think that they were symmetrical with each other or they no not the word symmetrical you would think they were symbiotic yeah. with each other but they're no they're they're, they're it's, it's it's too many it's too many different projects to do any one of them good so and i don't want to be a supplement guy there's just one or two supplements <laughs> that i absolutely believe in because i've seen them and i know the science behind them and i've seen them work tremendously in myself and I've seen them work anecdotally on a massive population of people. And the good news is it doesn't have to be scientific because, remember, I'm not a doctor. I'm in retail. If I find <laughs> something that I think is good to sell, that's what it has to be. It has to be good to sell. So those two things are plant-based, effective probiotics as a supplement. They know exactly what they do, and I know how quickly they can help somebody with digestive issues if it's the right one. And I think in general, because people really feel good when they take a supplement that they really think works, there's a big placebo effect in that. But there's one supplement that I actually think people need more of, and that's um, lipospheric vitamin C. I think vitamin C in that form, lipospheric, as opposed to being uh, you know, the, uh, the bacteria-based one, you know, which comes from uh, fermentation. I think uh, the lipospheric is more absorbable and and it's less uh, harmful to the stomach overall. You know, people people generally feel a result from vitamin C. So I like I like that as a as a as a if I could just be the vitamin C supplement guy, I I, I would be happy with that. 
I don't so need to have... be like, oh, he's got E, he's got folic, he's got this, he's got that, uh, you know. Yeah. So you have retail. So you'll have the the flagship location, uh, Upper East Side, um, and then CPG. We're gonna we're gonna get to ten. St- we're gonna get to ten stores, and while we're getting to ten stores, we're gonna build out a CPG line, and I think that CPG. I'm gonna say it's easy as long as you have five million bucks to burn and five years. Mm. If you think if you think that you're doing it for less money and that it's going to take <laughs> less time, it's really hard. You know, there's a lot of comparisons I draw for consumer packaged goods. You know, with um, being in the music business, mm. you know, we have to remember the Beatles had a lot of competition. I mean, how many bands were there that could have been the Beatles? You know, just have a hit and be popular for a moment. It really takes. Besides talent, it takes luck. All the conditions have to be right, and that's lucky when you get that. You know, if it, if there were five people in the Beatles, it might not have worked. If 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 it said, uh, I was listening to a, a documentary on the Beatles, where uh, Paul McCartney's uh, dad didn't like the lyric, you know, to one of the songs, like you know, I want to hold your hand, and he said, can it be something like, I'd like to take a walk with you? <laughs> and they tried to play that with music. And can you imagine if that was the song and it wasn't I Want to Hold Your Hand? It just wouldn't have worked, right? So <laughs> the, the CPG business is a very slow journey of ironing out all of the 10,000 details so that when your turn comes, you're in the front of the line and you can execute. Um, Marcus, this has been an, a really fascinating conversation. As we kind of c- come towards the end, I'd love for you to just share some thoughts around, you know, consumers becoming more aware of what big food is doing to them. You know, who do you think are going to be the bigger, you know, the winners and losers? And do you think they'll get behind this movement or will it just enable kind of a longer tail of brands like yourself? Well, long term, the big corporations that benefit from the sick and suffering that consume their product, they're going to have a problem because their customers will be dead or they'll have their stomachs removed. And also at some point we're going to run out of runway for there even to be a planet inhabitable for humans. And so the time is now for everyone to stop making excuses or thinking that their problem is too little. Like if you stop doing something, you're like, ah, I'm just one person. What does that do? Well, guess what? Everyone is saying that. And so, therefore, no one is making the change. So it takes a crazy person to be the first person to stop doing something. It takes a person with energy and passion to have to go the extra mile to return a glass jar or carry a reusable bag. Very small things. Now, I don't think that those things end our carbon emission problems because they're coming from a bigger source. But... Why I do think it's important is because what it does is it gets the person who is the consumer of the primary prob- problem. The primary problem with carbon emissions is gasoline, right? It's, it's you know, uh, cars, oil companies. The way to get consumers to start to think about the problem is to make them think about something little. Like no one's giving up their gas car or, you know, they're not turning off their lights tomorrow and say, I'm going to be in candle power until, until the city supplies me with wind power. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but 
What gets people thinking about the problem is when they look at all the plastic and all the paper boxes and all the transportation that's involved in their consumption choices, and they say to themselves, you know, I don't like this. How, how, can, I, how can I change a little bit? And when that becomes popular and trending and people start to get, like, validated because they got, like, a little pin that says, I recycle, <laughs> then more people will do it. Just like little kids following, you know, following the leader. So I think that big companies, they know exactly why, they know exactly what I'm talking about times 10. They, big companies know why they're not using glass or paper. They understand it's heavy. You can't see through it. It's more expensive. It's harder to store. It can break and the customer doesn't want it. Big companies have to be smart enough to say, well, wait a second. If our customers die or they're, or they're sick, who the hell are we going to sell our shit to? So big companies already know that. And I think when you look at why Pepsi diversifies their portfolios and they invest in companies like, um, I'm going to misquote here, Pepsi owns Garden of Life or Nabisco owns Garden of Life. Just, just, I'm saying this right now, not as an educated person. Sure, I'm just sure. saying. There's big companies like Pepsi and Nabisco who, while on one side, let's say, they're peddling the shit that they peddle, they also have interest in very healthy, very good companies. So to me, it's not just because they like money. It's because they're thinking, they're trying to figure out how to cover their bases. They say, you know, if soda sales are slipping, they want to get into the healthy beverage space. The problem is that, is that their executives don't have the inventive genius to figure out how to really get into the healthy space. They have the money to do it. They're just not going to get the, back, the, the backing of the boards to take enormous risk because it doesn't rhyme with anything. Pepsi's not going to be the leader in fresh organic juice cleanses. They could be. They could do 25 million of them tomorrow. They could get 25 million people to do a three-day <laughs> fresh juice cleanse. They're just not going to do it because... It doesn't make any sense. So I hope you're a hopeful guy. I'm not. Uh, I don't know what the future brings. I, I'm not saying I'm hopeful or I'm pessimistic. I don't really focus in on the outcome. I just know that I have to keep pushing. I have to keep finding ways to market this, to sell this, to be the best at this, and, and just to do the thing that I'm supposed to do best at, which is to make the customer go, wow, that was great, and come back again. So that's, that's my mission for right now, really. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think just hoping for anything is, uh, is short sighted. I think you said it very well about our power as individuals and starting small and, you know, whether it's behavioral change, you know, small little changes to your daily lifestyle or being a sole individual with a crazy idea. Um, we need, we need more of you. Well, thank you. You know what? You got two choices. You're either going to do you, let's let's just equate it to an addiction. Okay, let's say that society has an extraordinarily terrible relationship with plastic and it's an addiction. Because any behavior pattern that we do repeatedly that is harmful to ourselves and others is a negative behavior pattern which classifies it as an addiction. There's two ways you're going to quit. You're either going to quit on your own, which you're going to do gradually through changing circumstances of your life, or you're going to be smashed over the head with the solution. You know, there's going to come a point where if the if humanity doesn't say, hey, we have to stop doing this and here's what we're going to do, guess what? Chemistry, science, and everything else in physics is going to shove the solution down our throat. 
So it's one or the other, yeah. right? Yeah, well said. So yeah, I want to give you just uh, some space to just promote whatever it is. You know, if, if people are in New York City, they want to try Good Sugar, tell us where you are again. And then if they want to check out the website, learn more, buy the book, uh, maybe get some vitamins or whatever else you want them to do. Tell us where they can find that. And if anyone wants to come work with you on expanding this, because we have a lot of entrepreneurs and Oh, that's great. People, uh, tell, tell us. Well, you know, I'd for. like to, I'd like to, I just want to pretend for a minute that I'm so valuable and important that I can say, look, guys, I'm not going to tell you where I'm at. If you need to find me, you'll do the research <laughs> on your own. Uh, that's really strange. No, we're on Third Avenue and 69th Street, which is a beautiful area of New York City. Customer base here is great. Positive, happy people, uh, really happy. We're getting all walks of life coming through the door. Uh, we're open seven days a week. We deliver. I Love Good Sugar is the website. ilovegoodsugar.com. You can follow us on social media at I Love Good Sugar. Uh, you can send me a death threat if you want. My email is uh, 369 at ilovegoodsugar.com. You know, there's somebody out there listening to me going, How dare you? How dare you? Amazing. I get more of that than I get, uh, Hey, great job, kid. I mean, I think that, that that's good that you, you do it. You love that validation when someone hates it so much that they're going to take the effort to actually tell, tell you that. It means you're doing something. I have the disruptor gene. My kids <laughs> have it. My stepson has it. You know what that disruptor gene is? What's that? You'll see it, you'll see it when they're young, or somewhere around eight. They're just annoying, and they just don't <laughs> give a fuck. <laughs> and, and, and I never outgrew that. What I do... As a branding guy that talks about this stuff, it's just annoying, and I don't care. I don't care. I don't. I I care about how I say it. I'm not looking to hurt people's feelings. I don't fat shame people. I'm not looking to make people upset. But I am a cold glass of water. I'm going to say what I think, and it's going to be right in your face. And uh, you know, challenge. Great. I love a debate. You know, let someone come on and say. What are you, crazy? We need more plastic. Are you nuts? Processed food saved us. I love that conversation. So I'm not afraid. Anyway. Very inspirational. Thank you, Marcus. And uh, we'll be following along closely. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter. 